Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. He would again be worshipped and declared to be the Christ. He would be sought by Greeks and would be wanted for dead by a ruthless, jealous, sad, and pathetic excuse for leadership of God's people. And my friends, it was a glorious scene. A glorious scene. This arrival did not happen in the middle of the night, and it wasn't announced only to shepherds. This arrival came in broad daylight, in prime time, and before crowds of people, masses of people, people who were singing, not with angelic voices, but singing nonetheless, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to catch a glimpse of this scene with me for a moment, even as you glance down at John chapter 12. See the scene with me, and then we'll make some application and understanding for our hearts. Catch a glimpse of this procession, first of all, as you see the crowd in your mind's eye, see the crowd. John emphasizes this crowd. In fact, he emphasizes this crowd throughout this section. You, you can see it in verse 9, before even verse 12. In verse 9, he references this large crowd. But then verse 12 in our text for today, the next day, John writes, the large crowd that had come to the feast. What feast are we talking about? We're talking about the feast of Passover. This large crowd of people, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they acted on it. And so as you visualize the scene in your mind, visualize a huge crowd. To get a better sense of that crowd, check out verses 17 through 19 in your text. The crowd, John writes, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So you can just imagine this, this large crowd that was already tracking Jesus because they saw him call Lazarus out of the tomb and raise him from the dead, these people are going through the crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem for the, for the Passover feast, and they are talking about it. They're bearing witness about this. Like, guys, we know someone who raises dead people. He must be the Christ. He must be the Messiah. Come and see him. And so you can just imagine with me the crowd's swelling, even as this smaller crowd goes to the larger crowd and bears witness about the power of Christ. Moreover, check out what happens in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. What are they saying? They are essentially saying, everything we try to do to tamp down the momentum about Jesus, it's not working. It's only causing it to, in fact, grow in momentum. We're kind of fanning Jesus into flame in all of this. And so they say, look, the world has gone after him. Now, of course, that's dramatic overstatement, right? Not the entire world, but it does give us a sense of what this crowd must have been like. As you visualize this scene in your mind's eye, Visualize a huge crowd as Jesus makes his way down the slope 
off of the Mount of Olives and up towards the temple, there in the Kidron Valley, you are seeing masses of people that have come to get a glimpse of Jesus. So see the crowd. Secondly, notice their activity. These guys, if you can just imagine the crowd coming and continuing to gather people, these folks are scurrying about grabbing palm branches. And this was an intentional move on their part as they were recognizing Jesus to be a kind of king, a Messiah figure. So the palm branch was for them a symbol of nationalistic zeal. It was a symbol of patriotism. So they are very excited in this moment that perhaps this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's going to take care of Rome. And so these people, if you can just imagine this, are running around grabbing these palm branches and many of them are waving them before Jesus. Some of them are throwing them on the path in front of Jesus. Other gospel records tell us that many are throwing their coats before Jesus. They're rolling out a kind of red carpet before him to welcome him as their king. All of these are pictures of enthronement. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. So can you see their excitement, my friends? This massive crowd, and they're so excited. Their faces are filled with joy, and they're grabbing for palm branches. They're throwing their coats. They're thrilled. The king is here. See the crowd. See their activity. Thirdly, hear their chant. Hear their song. Hosanna, verse 13. Check it out with me. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Every Israelite would immediately know that this is the culmination of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. We talked about that a little bit with regard to the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. They would instantly recognize this, for the Jews knew these psalms front to back. I mean, they, they had these guys memorized to the very letter. So it's significant that in this moment recorded by John, they go straight to the culmination of it, this messianic anticipation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, the word Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. So if you can imagine this massive crowd running around grabbing things wherewith they might praise their king and celebrate his entrance. They're also shouting messianic prophecy. Hosanna, save us now. You are the king. In fact, it's interesting that the word there or the phrase there even the king of Israel is not found in Psalm 118. They add that. That's kind of ad lib, and it's indicative of their recognition of who he is. In this moment, they are spot on. They are rightly recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. So see the massive crowd. See their activity, their exuberance. Hear their chant. Hear their song. But then now see the focal point. The point of all of this procession, the highlight is Jesus, verse 12. This is why they've gathered. Jesus is coming in, the centerpiece of the parade. Now, as you imagine this crowd, 
and you see Jesus riding in, I'm imagining that if you took a camera through this crowd, many of the people you would see, their faces just lit up with excitement, enthusiasm. It's just in the air. This is so thrilling. But I'm also imagining that there are some faces that would be caught by that camera that perhaps have tears streaming down them. Tears coming out of eyes that were once blind and now see. Tears rolling down faces that were once leprous and are now clean and clear. Perhaps tears running down a face that was once in a tomb, buried, dead. Many of these people in the crowd may only be there for a short time, but there are some, no doubt, my friends, there are some people in this crowd that are, that are there having been changed by Jesus. They've been talking about Jesus. And perhaps they are thinking in this moment, finally he's getting his due. Finally, people are recognizing what we've been saying to anyone who will listen. This is the Christ. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And they see Jesus as they watch him make his way. Perhaps there are tears streaming down their faces. You know from verses 20 and 21 that there are also Greeks that have come to the city. This is a reminder that there are many people that are gathering in the city at this moment from all across the land and even beyond. Interesting, in study of this, found that Josephus records during this time there was a feast of Passover in which over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. Typically, there would be one lamb per family. And so if you do the simple math, at minimum, you've got over 2 million people there. 2 million people there. And John is indicating that many of them, not suggesting in the millions, but certainly in the thousands, many of them are clamoring to see Jesus. News about him has spread far and wide. And what do they see? As you visualize Jesus in this moment, making his way into Jerusalem, what do they see? What they see is interesting. At one level, he looks like a mere man. And he comes into Jerusalem humble, the text says, and seated on a donkey. In fact, on the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Why does Jesus do this? We'll see in a moment that it's direct fulfillment of prophetic literature, messianic prophecy, but he also does this intentionally to signal something. He signals here in this moment, my friends, the kind of Messiah he is. He doesn't come into Jerusalem riding on a war horse, prepared to lead the troops into battle. He comes as a humble Messiah with an offer of peace. He comes as the prince of peace. Do you see this scene, my friends? Huge crowd, the buzz, the activity, the palm branches. Hear their chants. See Jesus humbly riding in. And then lastly, to complete the scene, verse 19. You got to get the Pharisees in, right? They're always there. <laughs> They're always there. The Pharisees are lurking in the shadows. 
They said one to another, verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. Everything we do is coming to nothing. We cannot stop this guy. The crowds are going after him. In fact, they say, the world has gone after him. So, brothers and sisters, here's what we need to grab in this moment. Don't miss this. The main thing you see right off the bat as you watch this scene develop, the main thing you see is a coronation, right? It is a celebration that's kind of long overdue. The people are recognizing him finally. The people are recognizing that this is the Christ. He is clearly the Messiah, right? I mean, that's what we've been attempting to show throughout the Gospel of John because that's what John is trying to show. John is saying, I'm trying to prove it to you. I'm laying out the case with detail. He's the Christ. There's no doubt about it. I'll show you seven signs and a lot of other details around those signs, but I'll show you seven that will give definitive proof. He's clearly the Messiah. And it seems like here in John chapter 12 that everybody finally gets it. Everybody finally sees it. He is clearly the Messiah. Now, let me just add in a couple extra details that are beautiful in my view. First from Luke's record. In Luke's record, there's a moment when Jesus is making this procession where the Pharisees actually rebuke Jesus. They confront Jesus. And they say, essentially, like, you shouldn't accept this praise. As a mere man, like, you should not ex- accept this kind of adoration and praise. And what does Jesus say to them? This is very interesting because for the disciples, th- these moments must have been a bit of an enigma. Remember, within the last year, the disciples have seen Jesus kind of push crowds away. They've also seen moments where people wanted to take Jesus and make him king, and Jesus is like, no. And he escapes that. He eludes that. But here in this moment, he's accepting the praise. Here in this moment, he's embracing the praise. And in Luke's record, the Pharisees call him out for it. And what does Jesus do now? This is so good. It chills down my spine when I think about it. Jesus, with an authoritative voice, turns to these guys and says, if these guys don't say it, the rocks will cry out. Everything in nature is prepared to scream out the truth that I'm the Christ, the Son of God. It's definitive. It's clear. So Jesus, in this moment, embraces the title, the mantle. He is the Messiah He is the Son of God. That's one. A second one that I'll mention is from Matthew's record. And this blew me away this week. In Matthew's record, Jesus continues into the temple. He goes into the temple and he cleanses it for the second time. So Jesus, for the second time, demonstrates his total authority. Like he's setting up a completely new regime. And so he cleans out the temple. And then, in Matthew's record, he begins to heal people. Can you imagine this? According to Matthew, it's not just one or two. Like he stays there for some time and just heals like one after another. Can you imagine this moment? This massive crowd that is shouting the Hallel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord endowed with everything that the names of God convey. He's marvelous in our eyes. He's remarkable. And Jesus then goes into the temple and begins to heal people. 
I mean, the proof is there, right? It's remarkable. It's astonishing to me. Jesus is the Christ. Amen? Now, I just want us to pause right here before we go any further and say, at that level, okay, at that level, you and I should model what we see here. We should model, number one, the praise of these people, but number two, the pursuit of the Greeks. If you notice that in verses 20 and 21, these guys come from afar and they want to see Jesus. They are pursuing Jesus. So they give us an example to follow in. This is also, by the way, a beautiful statement with regard to what Jesus as the true Messiah will do, that his gospel is not just for the household of Israel. Amen? It's for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Everyone is welcome in Christ. Amen? Great spot. Great spot for one. But if you can imagine this, these guys are doing what you and I should do. In fact, in John chapter 12, we've been given two beautiful examples already of real worship. Beautiful examples that you and I should follow. As we saw last week from Mary and Martha and Lazarus together there in the house of Simon the leper, they, they didn't think twice about giving to Jesus a year's worth of wages, a year's worth of wages. They were not wealthy people. But they thought it nothing to give a year's worth of wages to just demonstrate the value of Christ. You are worthy. You are worthy. You're worthy of anything. You're worthy of everything. Worthy of worship. And now these people, here with palm branches waving them, with their coats and their branches thrown before him, rolling out a kind of red carpet, and with their crying out, is the language of this text, the crying out of the Psalms to say, he's good. This is an example for us. Amen? So you and I should praise him like this. We should also pursue him in this way. But, I would say, beginning in verse 16, things in this moment don't go as we expect or as we might expect. If this is the first time we're reading this, things don't go as we might expect. And we're clued into that by John in verse 16. See it with me. His disciples, John writes, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, meaning when he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. What things? What are we talking about? Written about him. And had been done to him. What things are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the depth. My friends, we've just seen the scene. We've mapped our way through it. But now let's just mark the depth of it. Because here's the deal. The disciples, even as they are participants in this in this moment, willing participants, undoubtedly authentic participants of praise for Jesus, they didn't get it all. They didn't fully grasp everything that was going on. And John tells us that in verse 16. So my question for you at this point is this. What did they miss? What did the disciples miss that on this side we can see 
Okay, please track with this. I believe that there is rich truth for us, for our hearts. What did they miss that John is saying they didn't quite understand that on this side we can see? A couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice with me the prophetic fulfillment. The depth of the prophetic fulfillment. And in this, my friends, I want you to mark with me the awesome trustworthiness of God through the supernatural veracity of his word. The awesome trustworthiness of God. You can bank on his word. You can hit your life to the word of God. It is supernaturally true. Amen? Boy, it is. Let me help you see that a little clearer in this text. We've already stated that Jesus is the fitting fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. But I want you to see it perhaps in greater depth. So go with me there if you would. I'll read it for you so you don't have to go there, but it might be helpful for you to see. Some of these days I'm going to go back here around a triumphal entry moment and just preach this text because it's so rich. It's so rich for us. But I just want you to see a couple of things. There is so much depth to the fulfillment in the triumphal entry of Psalm 118. Let's begin reading in verse 22. Immediately, you'll recognize some of this. If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings or perhaps the teachings of the Apostle Peter and his letters, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I want you to see this because it's, it's remarkable to think about the fact that even as they sing this song, as they sing this song, when Jesus is making his way on this little donkey, he's making his way down the slope of the Mount of Olives and up towards the temple. Even as they sing this song, the builders, i.e., led by the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, but in reality, all of the nation of Israel are preparing to reject him. It's remarkable. Even as they sing this, they're preparing to do it. And Jesus is preparing to be the cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. This is the phrase that's transliterated as Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the direct quotation that John gives us, the snippet that John gives us. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Now note this next phrase. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Even as they sing this song to Jesus, plans are being concocted to bind him as the ultimate festal sacrifice. The depth of this is remarkable, my friends. I just want you to grab it. All of this is speaking about something. It's speaking about the trustworthiness of God's word. His word proves true. Amen? It proves true. Moreover, we consider the image of the donkey and how it is direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. 
Now, I want you to see this perhaps in a little bit greater detail as we look at on the screen Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. But don't just fixate on the donkey. The donkey is the key feature here, undoubtedly. But don't just fixate there. Let's read this together and just think about it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That sounds a lot like what? It's a quote from Psalm 118. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. That last line, yet to be fulfilled. We look forward to his soon return, amen, in which he will rule from sea to shining sea. <laughs> but notice with me this entire scene in Zechariah 9. Of course, of course we see the donkey. I don't want to make light of that. It's remarkable. Okay, it's remarkable that Jesus fulfills this to the exact precise detail as prophesied by Zechariah hundreds of years before that Jesus is riding on a donkey and not just a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. But a skeptic might say, well, that was easy. Think with me. A skeptic might say, I mean, come on. Like if I knew Zechariah 9, I could very easily just grab the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey, and make this happen. Let me ask you a question. Make the whole scene happen? Think about it. Look at Zechariah 9, 9 again. Note the crowd that's reflected there. Rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is fulfilled. The whole scene is fulfilled in the triumphant entry. It's not just the donkey. The donkey is maybe a central piece of it, but it's the whole scene. My friends, you could not manufacture this. You could not manufacture this moment. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey to the throng of Zion, to the throng around Jerusalem. This is awesome stuff, my friends. Lastly, though this is not directly mentioned here, perhaps it deserves mentioning, for the timing is uncanny. I want to point you to the famous prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. The prophecy details a vision that the angel Gabriel gives to Daniel when he's in Babylon in the 500s B.C. So I think it has import here for us. Let me just begin to read here. You'll see the text on the screen, Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, about your people, Daniel, the people of Israel, and your holy city, the city of Jerusalem. Now note the culminating language, the culmination language to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, let me help you for a moment. 
Literally, the language is that of 77 here. 77s, or interpreted as 70 increments of seven years, which equates to 490 years. Now, to speed up the process for a moment, we don't have time to go into great detail here. Understand that as the prophecy develops, these 490 years are going to be broken up into three sections. There's an initial section of 49 years, there's a section of 434 years, and then a final section of seven years that we believe is yet to be fulfilled. That will happen at the end of the age. And so that leaves us an initial 483 years. So with that in mind, consider what the vision goes on to say in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, a kind of decree is envisioned here to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled times. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, this Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So what the prophecy is saying is that there is going to be a period of 483 years from the time a decree is given with regard to Jerusalem until the time in which a Messiah will come, an anointed one will come, and be cut off. Just track with me. 483 years in between. So what's the decree? Now, at this point, I'll acknowledge that there is debate about which decree is envisioned here. For there were two primary decrees that were given by pagan kings. The first in 539 B.C. by Cyrus the Persian. But then the second one, relating primarily to the walls, this is in Nehemiah's day, the walls and the remaining parts of the city that were left in disarray, that was given by Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. Now, just check this out for a moment. If you're using the Jewish calendar, so don't get tripped up by this. If you're using the Jewish calendar from that second decree in 444 B.C. until this week that we're talking about, Passion Week, guess how many years there are? Roughly 483 years. Remarkable. My friends, it's remarkable. It's a statement about the fact that the Lord was right on time. Amen? The Messiah was right on time. He was called the long-awaited one, but he was right on time. I've quoted this to you before, but I love the old spiritual song made famous by Mahalia Jackson about the God that you can't hurry. He's a God you can't hurry, but don't you worry. He may not come when you need him or when you want him, but he's always right on time. Amen? He's always right on time. All of this is testimony, my friends, to the fact that God's word proves true. Amen? God's word proves true. So notice the fulfillment of prophecy. It's depth. But then secondly, my friends, notice with me how 
this narrative comes to a screeching halt. Notice the abruptness of its end. Now, to help us for a moment, I I want you just to imagine that you are watching the coronation of a new British monarch, a new king or queen of England. Just imagine that. Imagine you're watching on your television in your living room, and you're watching the massive crowd, right, that's gathered there, and people are so excited. There's all kinds of emblems about the monarchy, and it's an exciting day. And suddenly you see the carriage come, and everybody's getting so pumped. The carriage stops, and the queen or the king steps out of that carriage, and people go crazy. Right? The crowd screams. Perhaps they say, God save the, save the queen, save the king, right? And everyone's excited. And you, you notice, as you watch on the television, you notice that there is a red carpet that goes right up the hill into a castle where there's a throne and a crown. But suddenly, your television goes black. It goes black. Flip back to, like, the desk at KOLN or whatever. Thank you for joining us for our ongoing coverage of the monarchy or whatever. And that's it. You don't see him go in. But then, like three days later, you read that he's been killed. Think about that. What would that be like? That's what happens. That's what happens here. You see all of this coronation, and it's spot on. The people, it seems, get it. But he comes into Jerusalem And just a few days later, it's all over, so it seems. It's triumphant, but it appears as tragic. He doesn't get carried to a throne and crowned as king. Rather, he will get crowned with thorns and carried to a tomb. But my friends, this doesn't take Jesus by surprise. And I know that many of you know this, right? Most of you know this. This doesn't take Jesus by surprise. It hasn't taken you by surprise this morning. But please engage it, track with it, in order to see the meaning of it. This is truly a triumphant moment. It's not ultimately a tragedy. This doesn't take Jesus by surprise. Check out your text, verse 23. We've already read how In verses 20 and 21, Greeks see Jesus, seek Jesus. Philip and Andrew, they pass the message on to Jesus. There's people that want to see you. And in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour, a significant word in the Gospels, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that might sound like an initial enthronement, a quick enthronement. But that's not what Jesus means. Throughout the gospel records, when he's talking about his glory, it always involves first suffering. For Jesus' enemy was much bigger than Rome. My friends, track with this. Jesus' enemy was much bigger than Rome, and his mission was much bigger than just the nation of Israel. Much bigger. 
There's a reason why the statement is true, hear me, when you and I could say, God saves us from himself, by himself, for himself. For God's holy, just, righteous wrath must be atoned for, must be paid for. See, my friends, Jesus didn't come in this moment as a military leader. He came as a suffering servant. He came to die. He talked about it in this very text. Check it out, verse 24. A grain of wheat, he says, falls into the earth, and if it does and it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Verse 27, Jesus talks about the fact that his soul is troubled. His soul is troubled, but for this purpose, he says, I have come to this hour. What is he talking about? He's troubled about the suffering, the the fact that he is about to bear the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. This is the meaning of his hour. Verse 32, if I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John helps us to see that he's talking about how he is going to die. Everything about this text reflects the fact that Jesus knew what he was there to do. Jesus wasn't surprised that they didn't immediately take him and make him king, but rather in a few days would take him and crucify him. Another angry mob in a few days would yell out, crucify him, get him out of our midst. And so in Luke chapter 24, Jesus would help. He would help his disciples. He would help his followers and he would help us. As he will say this, speaking of fulfilling prophecy, Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? You see how he attaches suffering to glory every time. His glory was only going to come on the other side of his suffering. He was there to lay his life down as an offering for sin. As Aslan goes to the stone table, Jesus goes to the cross, my friends, and he lays his life down so that you and I could be forgiven, so that you and I could be free. Amen? It's remarkable. This is his mission. This is his aim. So in this moment, as he enters the city triumphantly, I want you to see it is triumphant. It is not ultimately a tragedy. At one level, you could say, yeah, it is. They should, have, they should have understood, and they should have. But my friends, Jesus knew that already. He knew that already. The same blindness that caused them to not be able to see that he truly was the Messiah is the blindness for which he came the blindness for which he would die. So Jesus' triumphant entry is truly triumphant. So as we think about these things, understand that about 2,000 years ago, Jesus would triumphantly enter the world that he made through a womb that had never been opened. He was worshipped by some, sought by some Greeks from the east, 
and wanted for dead by a ruthless, jealous, sad, and pathetic excuse for a leader for God's people. But the high king, Herod, wouldn't succeed, and the world would see Jesus. The world would see Jesus. But 33 years later, Jesus would again triumphantly enter the city he planned on a donkey that had never been ridden. He would again be praised and declared to be the Christ. He would be sought by Greeks and would again be wanted for dead by a ruthless, jealous, sad, and pathetic excuse the leadership of God's people. But this time, the high priest would succeed. So the world would see Jesus. Amen? In this way, it is triumphant. Jesus came on a mission to redeem, and he accomplished what he set out to do. He came to die, and he was raised again, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. I can say it this way, my friends, we are two triumphal entries down with one to go. Amen? Two triumphant entries down, one to go. Because all of this is true, because he accomplished his mission when he came out of the tomb, we can count on the fact he's coming again. Amen? And this time, this time, not on the back of a donkey. He will be riding a white horse, riding a white horse, robed in victory. My friends, you can count on it. This is your God. This is your Savior. Amen? Let's praise him together. God, thank you so much for your great grace. You are so good. We praise you for coming. We recognize this morning that it was our sin that put you on the cross. And yet we thank you and we praise you that you came to do that. You came to go to the cross to lay your life down as a sacrifice for our sin. We praise you that you accomplished that work. You defeated death. And we are so glad that you're coming again. So even so, this morning we say, Lord Jesus, quickly come. In your name, amen.